Good morning, and welcome back to your Hebrew Nation Morning Show, where Hebrews from all over the world gather to share and listen about the biblical roots of our faith. Sit back with your favorite morning brew and join the conversation. Lines are now open, so call 503-967-3001-503-967-3001. Hebrew Nation, His Kingdom, His People, and Your Radio Station. Well, good morning. You are listening to Hebrew Nation Radio, and we are echoing. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. So, anyways, uh, there it quit. So, good, good, good. Uh, welcome to Hebrew Nation Radio. You're listening to the Wednesday Morning Show with Dr. Deb Gold and Miriam Stallsworth, and it is a Rainy, cold, miserable day in Oklahoma, but the sun shines bright in our hearts. Right, Miriam? You are absolutely right, Deborah. First, I thought maybe you were on the mountaintop with that echoing, but <laughs> we're on the mountaintop with our guest today, aren't we? And it's always a good day to be on. Yes, it is. It is. And uh, we have uh, we have had some challenges this morning, so... Yes. You guys are in for a treat because when we have this many challenges, we know that this show is going to be monumentally awesome. And we have a guest today. Her name is Dr. Dina Dye, and she is absolutely amazing. I think when Trump leaves office, we should definitely see if we can recruit her to run for president. Um, (laughs) She's not only a conference speaker, but she is also an author herself. And um, she's also just a, I I hate to use the word a social activist because I think that's what they used to call Obama. But um, she's out there doing, you know, making her voice and our voices known. She's also the the national um, founder for the the on fire prayer movement that's swept across like wildfire across the nation and even in other parts of the world. And so it's our honor today uh, to have Dina, Dr. Dina Dye on our program. Good morning, Dina. How are you? I'm well. Good morning, Deborah. Good morning, Miriam, my favorite co-host right here. <laughs> and thanks for that kudos. Ain't no way I'm running for president. Okay. <laughs> One of the main reasons is I hate meeting, so I right. would never do well environment. <laughs> dang, I, dang, I was looking to finding out all the dirt on you, and that, that would be one sure yeah, right. way to do it. <laughs> Yeah, the the FBI would just have to go look through my hippie years. It it would not be pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, but you are really, um, you are on my 10 uh, most admired women's women's list. And uh, you have just been extraordinary to so many people. And so I can't wait for... For you to share a little bit, um, Miriam, she just did a temple conference, which you you know right. as well, 
And so could yeah. we hear about some of that? I, I heard great things about sure. it. Yeah, so uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar, we do this, uh, this is an annual temple conference. I think we called it 104. So this is the fourth time we've done it. And of course, each year we take a different track. And we meet down in Orlando, Florida, in a hotel very close to the airport. So it's a pretty easy in and out for everybody. And it is an intensive. Okay, this isn't your lightweight conference. You go in, you know, Friday night, Saturday, and then you head out Sunday. The people that show up for this are dedicated, let's just say. So this is a four-day intensive. We go from morning till night, uh, starting about 8 in the morning. And the teaching goes, you know, well, close to six o'clock and we might have something in the evening or, you know, some downtime. And we do that basically Thursday through Sunday. So this year, uh, Ryan White uh, from Faith of Messiah Ministries and, of course, Rico Cortez hosts the entire thing, Wisdom and Torah. And uh, Wisdom and Torah just does a bang up job uh, on this. They, They take care of every detail. They make sure we as speakers are well taken care of. Yeah, it's just it was just delightful. And of course, who doesn't love to go to Florida in the dead of winter, right? Yes. <laughs> I was only eighty five one day. So. <laughs> but you I was very much, were you? <laughs> no, I I loved every minute of that. And yeah. especially where I live, you know, the, the, the worst weather is sort of between Christmas and about mid-January. So I missed that entire three weeks. So I was in heaven down in Florida enjoying the beach. <laughs> but uh, what was unique this year, Rico's just finished putting together a, a VR app on the temple. And it's based on all of the research of Joe Good. So Joe's been at this for well over 40 years. Mm-hmm. And he has uncovered locations of things and just sort of the, the, the structural framework that even the rabbis are blown away by. So all of Joe's research uh, has, has been put into a VR. So there's an app now if you want to purchase it. And I think you can just uh, just go to Wisdom and Torah. But it the app and really the VR, you put those glasses on and man, it is just amazing. So I'm not real good at, you know, I didn't grow up in the era of, um, what do you call that? <laughs> Technology. <laughs> With the press the button thing. <laughs> right. You know, that's not my forte. So uh, I found myself falling off the temple roof uh, quite a few times. <laughs> you know, sort of losing that. Uh, but you just, uh, if, if you want to get a sense of the size and the scope and the drama of the environment, uh, you know, the VR is just, it's fabulous. And, and even, you know, they've figured out some of the floor patterns and just the magnificence of it. Uh, you know, I can't. It's really outstanding to learn where the chambers and and, uh, the the various uh, courtyards, et cetera, are located and the the procession that follows when you come in from the southern steps, you know, and enter. I mean, it's just fantastic. So that was probably the highlight uh, for a lot of people there because this he had just released it. So everybody got their turn with the with the goggles and, uh, you know, had an opportunity to walk through the temple. Uh, that's the best thing out there for learning about it. So for many of you, uh, you know, Joe Good was my mentor for many years, just learning the framework, the structure, the archaeology, etc. 
And what I did was I took the that sort of practical, structural, concrete material as my foundation and then from there built off to, to try to understand it in a more creative way, if you will, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term. So I just, you know, I've just bounced off of what he's done in writing some of my stories. And that was kind of my approach uh, at, the, at the conference. So Rico was really focused on the sort of archaeological and structural framework of the temple. Ryan had, had done uh, a lot of work in the area of Passover. He also talked about some of the parables, <clears throat> prodigal son, etc. And I focused in on, uh, through my sessions, really from Genesis chapter one. And I took uh, what I saw in that, a pattern of the, you know, that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, that is basically created a house for himself, which you know, that's essentially the temple, and that he completed his work on the seventh. And we talk about that in terms of of rest, and I associated that with sort of the king taking the throne, but that God rested the man he formed in the garden. So this is kind of kingship. So we have temple, rest, and kingship. And then the purpose of the man in the garden was to cultivate and to watch over and guard. And the concept of cultivation has to do with, of course, working the garden to bring forth food. And so, but that is our aspect of worship. So that was sort of the, the basis of what I put together, the temple, rest, kingship, and worship. And I tied that to the book of Matthew, because if you read the very first verses in the book of Matthew, it talks about that the book is the genesis, if you will, of Yeshua the Messiah. So it takes us right back to the same place in that God created the heavens and the earth. So I looked at that Yeshua, the Messiah coming forth is sort of the temple, right? He, he talked about himself as being a temple mm -hmm. and that he was the son of man and the Lord of the Sabbath. So here we have this concept of rest again, that he was the one born king of the Jews. So there's our element of kingship. And that uh, in talking about the, the uh, wise men that came from the east and who saw the star, they've come to worship. So right there in, in Matthew 1, we have a parallel with Genesis 1 in this creating the temple, rest, kingship, and worship. So that was sort of what I presented. Uh, I'm not going to speak more about what I presented at the conference. So uh, I don't know if you have any comments or anything on, on that. No, it's, well, it's really fascinating. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever heard Matthew 1 compared to Genesis 1 before. So how did you how did you make all those connections? Was it uh, just divine revelation? Was there some type of research you did? Well, I you know I think it hit me when I read the very first verse of Matthew, in which it says the book of the Genesis, and that's the word the Greek word that's used in there is Genesis. Oh. I'm going, well, that's kind of interesting, right? I mean, bells go off, and I thought, well. That got me thinking. So is, you know, Matt, is there, there's a reason Matthew's the first book, uh, you know, the first of the Gospels. And in that very first chapter, we're laying out how the seed came forth through all of the dynasty, the generations, the seed came forth, which is really the pattern that we have in Genesis. So I started looking for the parallels. And, and I think that, you know, Genesis and Matthew really go hand in hand. And certainly we, we can see similar elements in John, but I yeah. would say that there's a reason it's the first gospel and the first book of the uh, the New Testament. So wow. I just kind of went from there. Wow. Now they, 
Christina, uh, of course, that Matthew was written in Hebrew? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, this is an area of a lot of debate. And it, you know, I, and I don't like getting into all the controversial stuff. Right. And it could well have been, and certainly the flavor of Matthew is very Hebraic in its expressions yeah. and the things it talks about. Uh, you know, there are many that would, could, you know, say that it was written in Greek. So I, and it could well have been, I sort of go with the Greek, but uh, I can certainly see how much of the, the Hebraic flavor is in the book. And I'm always sort of looking for that. Yes, yes. Right, right. Well, I've, I've read too that uh, if any language could have at that time mirrored in meaning and depth um, the Hebrew language, it was probably Greek. A lot yeah. of the words well, I mean, and the it, meanings. It, it was the language of the day, but it doesn't take away no. from what's being said and from the, you know, the sense of it. And, right. and you know, that first chapter takes us through the, you know, these three sections of 14 generations. Yeah. And that's not an accident because remember, I mean, that's a total of 42, right? Right. And I would suggest that there's a, there's some sort of message being communicated here by the author taking us to when, when, because, well, let me just back up for a moment. I'm, I've really been encouraging people to read the, the Gospels in, in particular, but then the entire New Testament through the eyes of the Exodus, because virtually everywhere, every chapter has got a message of the Exodus. And this is why Yeshua came at the time he did, and he, he died at Passover and rose from the dead. This is that salvation message of deliverance, of course, from death, but mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the Old Testament, the deliverance of Israel from her enemies, Pharaoh and company. And so if you look at Genesis 1, uh, excuse me, Matthew 1, it, it's interesting to me that you, you consider they go through the sea and then, then they're traveling around, you know, with the portable tabernacle for uh, to all the different camps and the fact that there are 42 camps. I don't think that's an accident. Um, so we don't want to get too weird about it. But again, the Exodus is the key to reading the Gospels and the epistles, really. And so that's one of the things I talked about quite a bit at the conference is to try to learn to read it in that in that way. And it'll it's just it's kind of a game changer, really, when you see it that way. I was trying to think of even when we look like in Matthew four, when Yeshua was led uh, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That whole pattern there is, you know, filled with language that has to do with the, the Exodus, because the in the ancient world, you know, the devil, serpent, Hasatan, adversary would have been uh, at that time back with the Israelites. Of course, it would have been Pharaoh, and he was seen as representing the dragon, the devil, serpent, whatever you want to call it. And we see, you know, him fasting for forty days and forty nights, and being hungry. I mean, you know, that's kind of a random. <laughs> <laughs> and I did a whole teaching on that. So when, you know, we this is really Yeshua doing battle with Pharaoh and releasing the children of Israel. This is the pattern we have of Matthew 4. So it's just one small example. So an encouragement to people to start reading it through that filter, because the Exodus is the key, I think. Right, right. Well, and, and also, you know, you... Um I know you've touched on before the similarities of the miracles between uh, Yeshua and Moses and how his yeah. miracles kind of mirrored yeah. what happened in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I've got, 
uh, you know, I mean, we don't have time to go into all, of it, but I mean, I have a lot of teaching on it. So one of the things I did to to try to understand the concept of the temple and how it formed, because uh, mountains in scripture are very important, and we just kind of blow by them, right. and we don't think about it very much. But so for in, in ancient Egypt, the way they saw creation was, you know, you had the waters of chaos. And then uh, out of that would come forth what they call the primal mountain or the, the primordial hillock. That's sort of the scholarly expression. Mm -hmm. So uh, mountains or cosmic mountains were said to uh, dwell or be situated above these primordial waters. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the mountain, the idea of the mountain forming was to bring order into the cosmos. And so they, they chose mountains because, you know, makes sense in their world is the highest thing that they see, you know, and it was the connecting point between heaven and earth. And so mountains become that, that connecting. So in the ancient world, they always, uh, the gods, if you will, always built their temples on top of mountains. So now we, when we see in the scriptures this language of ascending the mountain, who may ascend the mountain, you know, one with clean hands and a pure heart. It's right. this idea of ascending into the presence of, for the ancients, their God, but in 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 our economy, the ascending into the presence of God. So right. mountains become really almost synonymous with temples, mm -hmm. because at the top of the mountain was a temple in the place where the God dwelled. This was very common, and so the mountain became that place of creation, if you will, where all the source of all life came forth. Now, you know, we obviously don't think like that. But I think this is very important uh, to help us understand what's going on, especially in the New Testament. So mountains are, are basically sort of an archetypal temple. And if you think about the number of times in, in the New Testament that Yeshua is going up on a high mountain, yeah. this right. is very significant. We just read it and go, oh, okay. Yeah. And then we argue over what mountain it is. Right. Um, but but he is making a statement about when he goes up on a high mountain and sits, which you can find that in a number of places. That is a declaration of kingship is as he is ascending the mountain in the authority of a king to the top, to the temple where, you know, where the throne of, of, of God or king is. And he sat. So now we're seeing he, he's really, I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount, right? Right, right. <laughs> he goes up and he sits with all the folks. And then what does he do? He, he declares these, uh, these principles for how his kingdom operates. He's taking on the authority of the king and he's communicating to the, to the folks that this is how the kingdom operates in opposition to the kingdoms of this world. So what's going on in, in, in Jerusalem at that time, of course, the temple is on Mount Zion, and it's supposed to be the place of the presence of God and his throne, but it's basically been taken over by a bunch of, you know, uh, corrupt officials who are, you know, ruling and reigning and enslaving the people. So we have this, you know, battle of two mountains, if you will. It, it doesn't really matter where the Sermon on the Mount took place. That's not the point. The point is this mountain <laughs> is the mountain of mountains where the king dwells in contrast to the ruling authorities and the political elites of the day. Does that make sense? Yes. 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 Totally. Totally. Yes. 
just so, so just start reading the New Testament and it's going to blow your mind uh, how often that you see him, you know, going up on a high mountain and sitting. And that now you have to say to yourself, OK, what is he communicating now about his kingdom? How is his kingdom different than the kingdoms of this world? And we see, you know, uh, with the Beatitudes, uh, you know, blessed are those who mourn, and they'll be comforted or those who are meek and they'll inherit the earth. Uh, the ones that are pure in heart, they will see God. This is 180 degrees opposite of the kingdoms of the world who their their kings operate by, out of fear and control, you know, and exercising power over the people. And Yeshua's operates by releasing the people to be free, you know, to be humble and to be kind and, you know, to be righteous, etc., Mm-hmm. You know, that's really a good perspective, a different, because a lot of times, and we always think, mountaintop experiences, you know, but also the getting away from everybody, that he would go, you know, away to be by himself, to be with God. And when you look at it with the perspective that you were saying, that's a, a very interesting perspective you're saying, and a way to yeah. look at it. Yeah. yeah, and it's very important because... This, this mountain language is all through the scriptures and, it, you know, they're high places and, you know, that makes sense because they're the highest thing <laughs> on planet Earth. And, and of course, the ancients thought about, you know, you could be, uh, you know, this is to ascend into the presence of their particular God, whoever that happened to be. It was it was common thinking. Uh, I just it, it, we can certainly make application for today. You know, obviously, we're not climbing up mountains and, and even the concept of temple ha- has changed for today. Um, Yeshua told us that, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And he was speaking of his body, the temple. Right. And so now, you know, the body is supposed to function as the place of the presence of God where those can come and enter in. Of course, we're not doing a great job of it, but uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you could. You, you know, right. I mean, I, I have a lot of material on this, so I don't want to get you know. I don't know how much more of that you want to to cover, but um, again, think about the uh, the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, mm-hmm. and you know who's up there. You know, we have Moses and Elijah, and and the the three want to build Sukkot you know, for him. And that's, that would be normal. They would want to build, you know, shelters or refuge or a place for his throne. Mm -hmm. And then we see the description of Yeshua looks just exactly like what we see with Moses who went up on, on Mount Sinai in the cloud, you know, was transformed and, you know, I mean, his light shining his raiments looking like white clothes, you know, the, the pattern of Yeshua in the transfiguration is exactly the same as what we have with Moses. And what did Moses receive on the mountain? Uh, he received the tablets of destiny, if you will. That's what they would call them in the ancient world. And what was the point of that? Well, the tablets of destiny, the Torah, were given by God to Moses. It, they were the the, the the governmental structure. This is how he, Moses was going to govern his nation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the same can be said, you know, with Yeshua. No, no king could operate with some, without some governing documents. Right, and, right. you know, you got like Hammurabi's code and, and various ones. So, 
this is all very sort of governmental kingdom and I would dare say kind of political, if you know what I mean. Yes, yes. Right, right. Yeah. Well, if you're going to find out how a king operates and how a kingdom, which is dominion of the king, is supposed to operate, the first place you need to go is to the king. So it makes sense, you know, in the Beatitudes and in the parables, you know, you're listening to the king tell you how his government operates. Exactly. And now, although we don't live in that world, we can take those uh, principles and yeah. apply them to our lives today because the king is pouring out his wisdom to us and saying, you know, this is wisdom. And, and what we need most, I would say today, is wisdom. Yeah. We're You've got in that. short supply. <laughs> we'll be right back. Sense. We'll be right back after this. Hold that thought. 